chapter 2. Magi have come from the east, they go to Herod's palace, they are directed to Bethlehem, they fall down for uh, the Lord Jesus and pay him homage and worship and give gifts. They are warned then to not go back to Herod, so they return to their homeland back in the east by a different route. And that is where we begin at verse 13 today, Matthew 2, 13. This is God's holy word. He gives it to us as people for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all boys, all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, In place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said to the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Regarding young children, it's always fun to sometimes make predictions uh, for what they might be when when they grow up, especially if they show some aspect of giftedness for something. If you you see a young child who's good at drawing, uh, you may say, oh, maybe one day you'll be an artist. Or if you see a child who is really good with Legos and building, you say, maybe you should be a builder or maybe you should be uh, an architect. There's a young man in our congregation that that uh, became true, played with Legos all growing up and uh, becomes an engineer. Uh, And there's something about this that uh, tells us something about the, the human heart, the human condition, what we long for. We Although we do this in kind of a a funny way, and most of these predictions don't come true, I was really good at basketball when I was three, but I never got a whiff of the the NBA, Uh, advanced well beyond other three-year-olds when I was uh, in the church nursery or in the church basement at that time. Most of them don't come true, but there's something that tells us uh, about the human heart there. We long to, to know our purpose. 
We long to know uh, what we were made for and how we will find uh, the greatest fulfillment. Hopefully, as we think about that as Christians, we think about serving the Lord through the things that we do. And uh, we often sometimes worry, am I I doing the right things? Am I serving God in, in the right way? In Jesus, we think of someone who had many words, not of prediction necessarily, but of prophecy explicitly, spoken about him uh, in the years leading up to his birth, hundreds of years before he was born. We hear words that were spoken about him. When he was born and around the time of his birth, we think of the Song of Mary. We think of the, uh, the Song of Zechariah, both in the Gospel of Luke. Elizabeth, the cousin of Mary, rejoicing when Mary carrying the child, the baby Jesus in her womb and goes to visit her. And she even says, in some sense, a word of prophecy about the child there. Simeon and Anna who say things about Jesus when he is brought to the temple. These words of prophecy that say what he would do, that he would deliver the people of Israel, that he would be for the rising and the falling of of many in Israel. And it, of course, is on a whole different level than what we do in our own fun times talking to little children. Because what was said about Jesus, every word, every prophecy that is spoken about him has been fulfilled, is being fulfilled, and will be fulfilled. There's nothing that has been spoken about him from the mouth of God that is not true and is not being fulfilled in some way. And uh, this allows us to see, as we look at the the ministry of Jesus, as we look to the the character of Jesus and all the things that he fulfills, that flowing forth from his redemption, because certainly the center of what we think about is Jesus Christ coming to seek and to save the lost. But there are many things that flow out from that blessing of redemption that give shape to our own lives, that tell us about our own purpose. So three things I want to think about today, we'll think about them relative to Jesus and to ourselves, is calling, comfort, and confidence. Calling, comfort, and confidence. First, uh, let us think about calling. Uh, We dealt last week with, with the Magi, and we had to sort of table our consideration of Herod because uh, there were a lot of things to deal with in that passage, but we will deal with him a little bit this morning. Herod was a tyrant. He was brutal. His life was really a descent deeper and deeper into a maniacal fear of losing his throne. All kinds of conspiracies that he acted against that were both real and imagined. There were some uh, or organized efforts against his throne, but he imagined many of them, and uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But a lot of his life was really dealing with the fallout from his moral failures and his governmental failures. We come to know about Herod in the Gospel of Matthew after we have learned about Jesus, who is the rightful king of Israel, from that genealogy in chapter 1, who ought to be king. Of the Jews. Well, it is Jesus Christ because he is the true son of David. So when the Magi go to visit Herod, he is immediately springing into action. He eliminates people uh, at the, the snap of a finger if he thinks they are any threat to his throne. So now he starts scheming. And he schemes by talking to the the Magi in public. And then he goes to them secretly, we see in that previous uh, passage at the beginning of chapter 2. He doesn't want to raise suspicion 
of a distrusting public and of these magi who are here on a genuine, sincere journey wanting to pay homage to the Lord. And so he is trying to trick the magi into giving him the information he wants. So when he feels tricked, Herod then goes into a rage. He is outwitted by the Magi, we read in verse 16, and there is going to be fallout from that. Over against the moral failures, the governmental failures of Herod, we have the righteousness of Jesus' family. So we talked about Joseph, who is very obedient, and we see him once again being obedient, doing exactly what he is instructed to do. The king of kings, Jesus Christ, was raised in a family of parents who wanted to serve the Lord. And that is a a beautiful picture for us to see. But they escape to Egypt because they are instructed to do so, because Herod is going to try and kill Jesus. And there will be others that he kills because of it. So Matthew brings us back to this prophecy in Hosea. This is fulfilled in Jesus. Out of Egypt I called my son. What we learn from that is that Jesus is mirroring the story of Israel because he is the true Israel. So Exodus, or the the book of Hosea, is referring back to the Exodus. Obviously, God called his people out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. And at the time of Jesus, there really have been about one and a half Exoduses, if we can call it that, that uh, the first one bringing his people out of Egypt, sets them in the promised land, gives them a land flowing with milk and honey, places a covenant before them, a covenant that they broke again and again and again, and through their unfaithfulness, they lose uh, their opportunity to be in that promised land. They're scattered. They're taken to other countries. They are enslaved. God begins to bring them back and to set them in their own land. There still is a scattering of the Jews all throughout Uh, the known world at that time, but God has begun to bring them back. But if you remember in the book of Ezra, as the temple foundation is, is laid, that there were those who knew the glory of Solomon's temple. And when they see the temple in the book of Ezra, they weep because the glory is much less. And so as we think about this idea of Exodus, what we're seeing is that God is saying, this pattern is going to be one that I use once again to bring about ultimate salvation and ultimate fulfillment. Because if you keep going through that pattern of Exodus and God brings his people back to the land and sets them in the land, if you do not deal with the problem of their sin, if you do not go deeper, then that cycle is going to keep repeating itself. So Jesus is mirroring the experience of Israel. He goes down to Egypt and he comes back up. But the exodus that he brings about is one where he does not set his people free from the enslavement of other earthly kings. He will set his people free from their enslavement to sin. In Hosea chapter 14 verse 4, you have this theme of exodus in the background of the book of Hosea and many of the prophets But Hosea says in verse 14, God says through the prophet, I will heal their apostasy. How can God set his people in uh, the land that he promises to them? Which to us, we think of the new heavens and the new earth. But how can he give us that ultimate inheritance in a way that it can never be taken away? He must take away our sin. 
He must take away our apostasy and our rebellion. And so this is what Jesus is doing. In the escape to Egypt, what we're learning is that Jesus Christ is himself the embodiment of true Israel. He is himself the true Israel because he is obedient in all of the ways that God's people could never be obedient. He is perfect. He is the perfect son of God. And he is a blessing and a light to the nations. Jesus fulfills that role in the way that no no other mere man could do. So we're reminded that as those who are enslaved to sin, and we see Jesus, Matthew is saying, Jesus goes down to Egypt, he will come back to bring about a new and a better exodus. And the Gospel of Luke actually describes when Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. If you remember when we went through the Gospel of Luke, he sets his face to Jerusalem and he goes to Jerusalem because he knows he is appointed to die to bring about his own exodus for us, to set us free from sin so that that pattern will not have to be continually followed. He brings about it in an ultimate way. But his role, as we said, is that of the true Israel. He is a blessing to the nations, and he is a light to the world. And what we find when we, when we think of the calling of Jesus, so he fulfills Israel, sets us, uh, the true Israel, he sets us free from our sin, he shows us the role of God's people, and as we are established in him and we think about his calling to set us free from sin and be a light to the world, it tells us something about our calling and our purpose. So Jesus teaches us about his kingdom. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're called to do that as members of God's kingdom, as members of Jesus' kingdom, to be a light to the world. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says the same thing. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Now there is an allusion back to the people of Israel. When they were in the wilderness, they would grumble against God. They would question God. God doesn't know what he's doing. He's brought us here. We're going to starve. We're going to die of thirst. I don't want to serve him. We're not happy. Constantly murmuring, grumbling against Moses and against God. Paul says, do all things not as they did. Do them without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Jesus was a blessing to the nations, Jesus was a light to the world as those who are called to be his people. We follow him in fulfilling that role. But how do we do so? We know that it's not so simple with our sinfulness, uh, with our tendency to fall back into the things that we do again and again. So two principles by which this happens. First, we must live in Christ. We must live in him. To be united to him by faith And to live our lives, thinking about as living in him, not in and of ourselves, and look to him. So live in him and look to him. Paul tells us something about this living in Christ in Philippians chapter 3. 
He says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul says, I'm willing to throw everything away for the one goal I have of being found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So we are to be found in Christ, and we're found in Him through faith, by trusting in Him, looking away from ourselves, and looking to the Savior. We live in Him. And then secondly, we look to Him. You have that mentality of faith, I am found in Christ, I live in Him. And then secondly, look to Him. With the eyes of faith, let your gaze be upon Jesus Christ. Behold his beauty. Behold his attributes. Behold his work. Let uh, the eyes of your heart continually behold Jesus Christ and all that he is and all that he has done. And as you do that, your life will be filled more and more with Christ-likeness. John Newton lays this out in uh, one of his many letters. He calls the recipient of this letter to look to Jesus. He says, the best advice I can send is when we read in Scripture that we are to be looking unto Jesus. The duty, the privilege, the safety, the unspeakable happiness of a believer are all comprised in that one sentence, looking to him. Let us first pray that the eyes of our faith and understanding may be opened and strengthened, and then let us fix our gaze upon him. But then he goes on to explain how how we do that. How do we look to Jesus? And this is what he says. How are we to behold him? I answer, in the looking glass of his written word. There he is represented to us in a variety of ways. The wicked world can see no form nor loveliness in the portrait he has given of himself. Yet blessed be God. There are those who can behold his glory as the glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. And when they behold it, they find themselves changed into his image from glory to glory by the transforming influence of the Spirit. In vain we use our reasonings and arguments and resolutions to beat down our corruptions and to silence our fears, but a believing view of Jesus does the business. He says, by faith, look to your Savior through the word of God. Behold his beauty. Behold his goodness. Behold his glory. And as you do all of those things with the eyes of faith, God will grant to you by the transforming influence of the Spirit, that that which you can never accomplish on your own. Living in Christ and looking to Christ with the eyes of faith gives us those things to be able to follow in the path of Jesus. He fulfilled his role, a blessing to the nations and a light to the world. When we live in him and when we look to him, we can be a blessing to those around us and a light to the world. Calling. Secondly, comfort. Comfort. Christ's fulfillment gives us unparalleled comfort. This is, a, it, it certainly is within Matthew's presentation of the, the birth of Christ, but in many ways it's a, it's a unique passage to talk about during the Christmas season. As Herod, in his uh, 
almost unparalleled wickedness all throughout, in, uh, all throughout the rest of Scripture does this uh, abominable thing. It's one of the more bu- brutal passages in Scripture. It does remind us of the Exodus once again, as Pharaoh did this same thing to the Israelite uh, children, and it gave occasion for Moses to be placed in the river and uh, floating in the basket, providentially found by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in Pharaoh's palace. But we read this story and our hearts shriek in horror. Uh, Herod certainly was capable of doing this. He had three of his own sons executed because he thought they were trying to take his throne away. He killed uh, at least one of his wives. He had, as I said, his life was really a descent into his maniacal fear of losing his throne. We often tend to think of this as thousands of babies. It, it thankfully probably wasn't that many, uh, although certainly one is heartbreaking and too many. Bethlehem, a small town, we don't know how much that was uh, the region around included, but it could have been a uh, hundred or less. Some historians think it was probably even far less than a hundred, even less uh, than 50. But this atrocity uh, brings us to that second prophecy that we are told about in Matthew chapter 2, verses 17. And it's from Jeremiah 31. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. As I said, this is from Jeremiah 31. And you have to go to Jeremiah 31 to realize what Matthew is doing here. Certainly he's bringing us to the reminder that in this world we have great affliction. And in this world, there is great pain and suffering. But go to to Jeremiah 31, and it says this. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. And then it says, thus says the Lord. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. He goes on to say, there is a hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. So Jeremiah is seeing, in his day, he's seeing all of the children of Israel ushered away into exile. And he uses this image of Rachel, one of the matriarchs of the nation of Israel, weeping for her children. But again, we have this language of a second exodus. God will bring us back. He will reestablish us. He will do something great. He will give us salvation. Jeremiah 31 also says this, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Turn mourning into joy. I will comfort them. I will give them gladness for our sorrow. One of the things that we learn as we think about this event with Herod, this great atrocity that was committed in Bethlehem and uh, the surrounding region, region is this. We're reminded that God's love stays with us, even in the lowest points, and his promise is that he will one day restore us to full blessedness. Christmas is the foundation of Christian hope because it is the answer for our affliction. It is the answer for Uh, all of the things that we need, from which we need to be comforted. Because it first deals with our sin. And because it promises to turn our mourning into joy. We live in a world that would pretend to shriek in horror at Herod, but our infanticide outstrips his by orders of magnitude. 
We are closer in our own wickedness, in our own evil hearts. We are closer to the wickedness of Herod than the holiness of God when we are left to ourselves. And so we first need an answer to our sin. Why are we in a world of all of this affliction and all of this suffering? It's because of our sin. And when God can deal with our sin in the Savior, Jesus Christ, who was sent for us. Now think about what happens here in Matthew chapter 2. Jesus escapes. But there were many babies, there were many children who did not escape. And how heartbreaking is that? And their families were left in pieces. And Matthew doesn't ignore that pain. Matthew doesn't disregard it. But he's saying it's only if Christ survives. It's only if Christ is allowed to live the life that he is appointed to live that God can give us an answer for all of our affliction. To first deal with our sin and then say, I will restore you. Those who become my people by grace. If Christ does not escape death here, then infanticide will always continue. Then the pain of this life will always continue. Then the miseries of this life will always continue. So we're reminded in uh, this part of of Matthew chapter 2 as we're brought to this prophecy in Jeremiah that Christ is the answer to all of that affliction. And he is the only one who can comfort us in the ways that we need ultimately. And so we're reminded as we think about comfort that as we uh, deal with the miseries of this life, as we have things come into our life that give us great pain and great anguish and are reminders of our fallen nature, what do we do? We must consider all of these things in Jesus Christ. Look through Christ to our sufferings. To return once again to to John Newton, this is what he says. He says, first, behold the man at the cross and contemplate his wounds. Let us sit down here a while and weep for our crosses if we can, for our suffering. But then he says, no, let us weep for our sins, which brought the Son of God into such distress. He says, if you look through Christ to your suffering, what you are reminded of first is the redemption that he has given to you because you needed to be forgiven. And then he says, consider the resurrection. He says, now go to his tomb. The stone is rolled away. He is not here. He is risen. The debt is paid and the surety discharged. Where is he? Look up. The clouds part, the glory breaks through. Behold the throne. What a transition. He who hung upon the cross is seated upon a throne. May every word sink deep into your heart and mine. He says, I know your sorrows. Yes, I appoint them. They are tokens of my love. It is thus I call you to the honor of following me. See a place prepared for you near to myself. Fear none of these things. Be faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. Matthew says, in the context of this part of Jesus' life, that suffering, affliction, all of these things will come, and for that there will be mourning. But God says, because of Christ, I will turn your mourning into joy. So live by faith in me. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Calling, comfort, and finally, confidence. 
There are many things we could take from this last prophecy fulfilled in this, in this passage. See, there's three prophecies fulfilled. We come now to the third. Many things we could glean from it. It says, the words of the prophets are fulfilled that Jesus will be called a Nazarene. It may seem like an insignificant detail. So the one thing I want to focus on then as we close is that God, every promise in Jesus Christ is yes and amen. God does not fail in his promises and God never fails to keep his word. Christmas is such a great reminder that God does not lie and God does not fail. He keeps his promises and he fulfills his word. And so... If his word proves true at every turn, and if every prophecy of Jesus Christ is fulfilled, is being fulfilled, and will be fulfilled, then you can be filled with confidence towards the future. And you can be sure that true wisdom is found in giving yourself to God's word and giving yourself to him in faith. Giving yourself to the instruction of God's word, to how it molds and shapes us into the new people he has made us to be. J.C. Ryle sums it up this way. He says, true Christians should remember this lesson and take comfort. Their father in heaven will be true to all of his promises. He has said that he will save all believers in Christ. If he has said it, he will certainly do it. He is not a man that he should lie. He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. We look to Christ. We look to the Christmas story. We look to all that he has done so that we can be filled with confidence. God keeps his word. He keeps his promises. Therefore, we are filled with confidence as we look to our lives and we look to the future. Because of that, we do not think that Jesus Christ reigns. We believe that he does. Because we believe he does, we shout it and we rejoice. Our king has come. He reigns. He is coming again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for all of these things. And we uh, thank you for your word. May it sink down deep. And may it take effect in us. We thank you and we praise you for this season. For all of these reminders. For the glory of Christ. May we live in him and look to him. May we be reminded of our calling. May we take great comfort in what he has done. And may we be filled with confidence. Uh, knowing that you are a God who does not fail, does not lie. Always keep your word, and every word that you have spoken will prove true. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.